One of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Gladiator, which won multiple Oscars, uh, Best Picture, Best Actor at the 2001 Academy Awards. It's the story of a noble Roman general who uncovers the assassination of the emperor at the hands of the emperor's own son. And to cover his tracks, the murdered emperor's son has the general and his family killed as he takes his place as Rome's new Caesar. But unbeknownst to him, the general isn't dead. He has escaped his execution squad and through a long series of events, finds his way back to Rome as a gladiator in the hopes that attaining status as gladiator champion will give him close enough proximity to the murderous emperor to take his life and avenge his own family's murder. My favorite scene, everybody's favorite scene in the movie, is when the general reveals his true identity to the murderous Caesar, commanded to remove his battle helmet, which has concealed his identity. He turns to a shocked Caesar and says, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the North. I could go on. I've got it memorized. I'll act it out for anybody willing to see that later. His return from the dead overthrows the wicked ruler, and it sets prisoners free. If saying that has ruined the movie for you, by the way, that's on you. It's been out 22 years. <laughs> Today, we come to celebrate another champion, though, the true champion, a real champion, not one who is the figment of a Hollywood scriptwriter's imagination, but one whose actual and not apparent triumph over death has overthrown the wicked ruler of the world and which has set captives free. It was birthed in the mind of God, and it was whispered into the ear of a prophet, a man by the name of Isaiah, and it is recorded for us in the book that bears his name, a book called Isaiah in the Old Testament in chapter 53. If you want to, I would encourage you to find that in your copy of God's Word. We've been looking at Isaiah 53 for the past several weeks, and we have discovered that the first nine verses, frankly, are pretty bleak. I mean, they're not, they're not words, that are, are, are words that are going to kind of build us up, at least on the surface of things, because they foretell the suffering and the death of Jesus that he would experience paying the penalty for humanity's sin. So it's a solemn chapter, to say the least, until you get to verse 10 where the tone changes considerably. I've asked verse 10 to be shown on the screens. Let's just take it in bite-sized pieces for just a moment. The first part of it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, which would lead us to have the question, why? Why was it the will of the Lord to crush Jesus, for him to experience all of the horrible things that are described in the first nine verses of Isaiah chapter 53. He goes on to say, it was because when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. And then it says, he shall prolong his days. Because by dying for the sins of humanity, that's what the reference to the guilt offering in the portion I just read means, He'll see his offspring, those who benefit from having 
their sins paid for by his death because, because the Lord will prolong his days. In other words, the one who died would have a long life after death. And this long life after death would prove that the death of the one who had died was sufficient to fully and finally pay the penalty for sin. That's what the rest of the verse means when it says, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. So in that verse, which was written 700 years before the first Easter Sunday morning, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah and said that the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, 1 through 9 would become the resurrected Savior of Isaiah 53, 10. Death would not be the end of him. This is the reason that Paul could write in 1 Corinthians that Christ died according to the Scriptures, was buried, and was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Scriptures had pointed this direction. Death would not be the end of the Messiah. And earlier in Isaiah 53, we're told the people would look on Jesus during his earthly experience and think very little of him. But when you get to verse 10 and the verses that follow... You have a Jesus who is so victorious that he has triumphed even over death. Now, we've all heard the saying, to the victor go the spoils. How did that come to us? Where did that phrase come from? Well, it came to us in all things, a congressional debate in 1831. Senator William Marcy of of New York was speaking to... Uh, how when uh, a new presidential administration comes along that all of the previous employees of the federal government who were loyal to that administration are ousted and new uh, employees loyal to the current administration come in. And so they were debating this in Congress, and Senator Marcy said, well, to the victor go the spoils. And that thinking is ingrained in us. Super Bowl MVP Cooper Cup won the Pete Rozelle Trophy a new car, and a trip to Disney World. Why did he do that? Well, because to the victor go the spoils. A week ago today, uh, Scotty Scheffler won the Masters, and he gets to pick next year's Champions Dinner, and I think he won a little money. Why do we accept that? Well, because to the victor go the spoils. This summer's baseball all-star game will be managed by Dusty Baker, the manager of the American League champion Houston Astros, Boo. And by Brian Snetker, the manager of the National League champions and World Series champion Atlanta Braves. Why do they get to do this? Well, it's an outcome of their victory. To the victor go the spoils. And that kind of thinking is absolutely ingrained in us. And so it's easy for us to think about this victory, which is talked about in verse 10, this ultimate victory by the champion of heaven in just that way. And to be absolutely sure... To the victor, the victor, the champion of heaven, do go the spoils. The man named Paul, writing in another part of Scripture, said that at the name of Jesus, because of all that has taken place, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Still another biblical author tells us that heaven itself reverberates with the praise to champion Jesus. So it's true of Jesus that he gets the spoils of victory, but significantly. He does not keep them to himself. If you would please look at verse 11. 
Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That's a point that Isaiah has actually already made in Isaiah chapter 53. Our forgiveness has been made possible by his death. And even those with a passing acquaintance with the Christian faith understand that at the core of it is this idea that Christ's death paid the penalty for our sin. But it's the next verse that I think we fail to fully appreciate as we should. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Having willingly followed God's plan, Jesus is exalted. But to have a portion and divide the spoils, as Isaiah has spoken of in verse 12, gives the picture of a general who has defeated an enemy. But rather than keep all of that for himself, he shares the goods that have been taken. Because Jesus was numbered with the transgressors, considered a sinner, and bore the sin of many, everyone, he is exalted and allows his followers to share in the benefits of that exaltation. Jesus is the champion of heaven, a victory won in his death and confirmed by his resurrection. But here is the thing we need to take away from those three verses that we must never forget. The triumph of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is meant to be shared. What Jesus accomplished in the resurrection was for the purpose of sharing. Jesus shares the spoils of his victory over sin and death with us. And I want us to conclude our time today by thinking about what that means, what that really, really means. Easter's are special days. They show up as holidays on our calendar. They frequently are associated with family, doing something special, unique, so we remember them. They rise out of the fog of memory uh, of everything else and stand distinct. Now, we don't remember all of them, but there are certain of those Easter's that we will remember. So here's what I'm asking. I'm asking you to stop and think, what's your most memorable Easter? Of the Easter's that you've experienced in life, which Easter stands out the most in your mind? Now, keep in mind, I was the one that was forming the question when I was writing this message, and I had a hard time staying the one. So, two actually came to mind. Now, one of them is obviously of primary significance to me, and that is, if pushed, my most memorable Easter Sunday. It was the Easter Sunday in 1978 when I gave my life to Jesus as Savior. Now, on that Easter Sunday, when I became a follower of Jesus, he shared with me all of the things that you expect a preacher like me to talk about in a sermon like this. He shared with me his victory over sin, 
a victory that I absolutely needed from him because Scripture tells me I couldn't achieve victory over sin on my own. I just couldn't. Forty-four Easter's ago, I realized for the first time that being a Christian wasn't about trying to be an 11-year-old good boy. It wasn't about having the right morals or going to church on Sunday. Being a Christian meant admitting that I had a far bigger problem than my temper or selfishness or, I mean, I was only 11, stealing an extra milk out of the lunch line. I don't know what it was. It meant that up until that Easter Sunday, I had never come to the conclusion that I was at war with God, primarily because I didn't feel like I was at war with God. You probably don't either. I mean, I was a good kid. I went to church. I loved going to church. I think even my family would say that from an early age, I was very tender and sensitive towards spiritual things. But up until that Sunday, I thought that's all God wanted. Instead, he wanted me to admit, as the Bible teaches, that sin made my very best unworthy to God. In fact, sin in my life made me, and these are the words that are used in Scripture, an enemy of God. But on that Easter Sunday, I saw that Jesus unilaterally brought peace to my life by paying fully the debt of my sin, which had announced my rebellion to God, and he had broken the power of spiritual death and physical death with his own resurrection, and he shared that out of his abundance and out of his goodness and out of his mercy with me. And so on that Easter Sunday morning, I took the spoils of a victory I did not win over sin and death from the Christ who did everything to provide it, and I have never been the same. That is why Easter Sunday, 1978, will always be the most memorable Easter of my life. But there's another Easter that's very memorable for entirely different reasons, and yet an Easter which drove home even more the victory Christ shares. That was Easter Sunday 2020, just two years ago. For the first time, and at that point, 34 years of vocational ministry, nobody came to church on Easter Sunday. It was just me. It was uh, a skeleton, scaled-back worship team. It was a handful of people on the tech crew. Nothing about it felt like Easter. I was standing in this room preaching to practically an empty auditorium. At the end of a service where we normally speak a blessing back to God from Scripture and over one another. I just stood here like an idiot, waiting for Ted to say, and we're out. For 13 weeks, that's how worship services ended for me. And we're out. I wake up in the middle of the night, occasionally hearing Ted say, and we're out. On that Easter Sunday two years ago, the world was coming unraveled in ways that at that point, I couldn't have begun to fully appreciate. In the months to come, 
all of society was gripped by hatred and, and conflict on a scale that I had never seen in my lifetime, and it was the most and remains the most toxic environment that I have ever lived through. Like you, on that Easter Sunday two years ago, I was starting to feel the disorientation of all of that. I was disheartened. I was depressed. I was angry. I was appalled. And I was afraid. And all of that was starting to manifest itself. Easter Sunday, 2020. But on that day, and in the days and in the months to follow, Jesus shared with me the spoils of his victory. He shared with me what it's like to go through a world that is unraveling, being at peace with God, understanding because he has brought peace between me and the Almighty that I can trust him even when everything doesn't make sense, even when I look out at a world that's scary. He helps me understand because he brought peace to my life with the Almighty, that everything is moving to that point where we get, like Paul said, every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It helped me realize that there is coming a world created by his own sacrifice where all that is sinful is gone and everything is new and fresh for eternity. In short, on that Easter Sunday two years ago, Jesus shared with me out of his abundance and his mercy what a life filled with hope, even in the face of darkness, can look like. Because he broke the power of sin with his death, and he broke the power of death with his resurrection. The champion of heaven has come back from the dead, and he has set me free from the guilt of my sin, and he has removed my estrangement from God, and he has quieted my heart even in the most difficult of circumstances. I would have none of that without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The triumph of the resurrection was meant to be shared. He means to share with you the power over sin and death that he won. He means to share with you the hope that an empty tomb provides. And so what's left for us to do is to receive it, to take what he is handing to us. I want us, if we would, please, to bow our heads and close our eyes.